Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 14 of the podcast. Today we'll be taking a trip down memory lane to celebrate a new release from one of my favorite fantasy authors, Miles Cameron, who writes historical fiction as Christian Cameron. This new release is unfortunately not available in the US, it's only available in the UK, but if you are listening from there, go run to the nearest bookshop to get Against All Gods, a Bronze Age set fantasy with... uh, Well, there's a bunch of really interesting things in it, so I'm definitely getting mine as soon as it becomes available in September in the U.S. Christian is a lovely person who lives the part of one of his own characters. He has his own suit of armor, like actual plate armor. He does historical reenactment in different historical eras, and he teaches and practices historical uh, sword fighting, fencing. And he's a lot of fun to talk to. So this conversation is from a while back, but you'll notice that it doesn't date at all. We talk about one of his older series called The Red Knight, which is his foray into the world of Arthuriana. At that point, I had only read one of his novels, I think. I have subsequently finished The Red Knight series, and although the last novel, Book 5, was a little bit of a downer for me personally, for various reasons, uh, it was still a great book, but I really like the uh, overall arc very much. It's one of my favorite series in um, epic fantasy. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me daily. They keep me creating. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for $2 a month and get access to early live-streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And now, on to today's show. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. And thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your leading me by the hand through levels of technology <laughs> I really don't understand. That's okay. That's okay. Some of us, some of us need to know how to, how to battle in medieval armor and some of us need to know how to, how to do YouTube. <laughs> True. I have, I have yet to write a novel in which anyone uses a cell phone. Very true. Yes. Well, maybe you'll do a time travel thing where a knight uh, opens up a cell phone and starts talking under or something. Nick, do you know I used to write thrillers, like spy thrillers? And, oh, yeah? And, and I wrote the last one in, I think, 2003. And my my co-author was my dad, and we'd both been intelligence officers. And we used to say, like, our world ended with the cell phone. Yeah. In your hand, yeah. you have a camera that can photograph documents. It can store immense amounts of I- images. Why do you need spies? Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, either that or everybody's a spy, right? Everyone is now a spy. Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. Well, okay, let's get let's get official. Everybody, uh, those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Nicholas Kotar. I'm an independently published author of uh, epic fantasy inspired by Russian fairy tales. 
and um, I'm a big fan of Christian Cameron. Uh, although and I'm I've, a big um, fan of wait, and I'm a big fan of Nick's. I he he sent me his novel, and it was awesome. And I would like to recommend. <laughs> I've put it out a couple of times on Twitter. I'd really like to recommend you read it. And I, anyway, I will I will praise you later. Go ahead. Thank you, thank you, much much appreciated. But I've I came to know you first as in your in your other uh, alter ego as Miles Cameron, not as Christian Cameron. Um, through your Trader Sun series, um, which uh, I first uh, listened to on on audiobook, and um, I'll I'll tell you a bit of a story. This this doesn't end as well as begin as well as it ends. But when I first started listening to it, I was sure that I would hate it, <laughs> and I don't know what it was, but um, maybe it was the narrator or something. I think it was the fact that the narrator pronounced the word domain as demesne. Ah, yes. Um, which. Yeah, which I wanted to throttle him for that, but uh, but once I I stuck with it for a little bit, and the the story just just grabbed me, and it wouldn't let me go, and I stuck with it for all uh, for all five novels until the until the very end. So that's how I got got to know you, and um, we've done a little bit of, of Facebook Live before, although um, I set set one up for you for your fans to ask questions, and today's the first time we're actually talking face to face. So that's me talking about you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do and. Uh, we'll start there. Okay, well, uh, I write books, and it's my only job. And I only say that because an awful lot of fantasy and other authors have a day job. Uh, I had a day job. I was an officer in the U.S. Navy. That was my last day job. Um, wow. Uh, I have degrees in medieval history and in classics. Uh, classics, in this case, meaning ancient Greek uh, and Latin. And uh, those aren't commonly found in the U.S. Navy, but somehow I managed to find a job there. Uh, I was in the Navy for a long time, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, that was before I grew my hair long. Yeah. Uh, I live in Toronto, Canada with my wife and daughter. Uh, Toronto is one of the nicest cities. It is the nicest city I've ever lived in. I'd recommend it to anyone who wants a visit to a nice place where people mostly get along, although we've had a spate mm -hmm. of killings lately. so. Maybe yes, I should I even say to, that. I have noticed that. Yeah. Uh, I write both historical fiction and fantasy. Uh, I do view them as being different, but I could tell you a million things about them that are similar. Uh, and now yeah. the more fantasy I write, I thought I knew a lot about fantasy because I've always run role-playing games and I've always played Dungeons and Dragons. And because my reading is mostly fantasy, I read a lot more fantasy than historical fiction. So I thought I really knew a lot about fantasy. And then I became a fantasy writer and discovered that actually I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Uh, it's a very yeah. different genre. It's got a very intense community. And um, yep. it's not the same as historical fiction. Although, Nick, I'm going to say one thing that has really begun to interest me in the last two years is watching yeah. the historical fiction community start to pull together like the fantasy community. So, Oh, that's great. Uh, instead of the authors all being independent, you know, uh, cats, as I think of them, they yeah. all started to like share stuff and be on social media. And there's actual yeah. groups and fan groups. It's looking a lot more like fantasy in the in the mm -hmm. sort of outside in way and the acceptance of criticism and the sharing. And that's good. I, I, I think yeah. it's as if historical fiction is adopting the most powerful and interesting parts of the fantasy community. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to hear it because you do hear a lot of stories about um, the author business being a bit of a cutthroat business. So to see that kind of going away with the with the social media world is is a is a nice is is one of the nice things about social media. One of the few nice things. Well, my dad is also a lifelong author, and my dad once told me that authors can't actually be friends. 
but I, yeah. I don't actually find that to be the case. Uh, and yeah. I friends with Simon Turney in the historical fiction world. I don't know what I do without him. And I'm friends with lots of fantasy authors now, Nick Eames, Kings of the wild, fantastic guy yeah. just lives down the road in yeah. Kingston. Um, I think, oh, uh, I think we are Canadian fantasy at the moment. I have yet to meet. Oh yeah. I have yet to meet Steven Erickson, even though I worship his books. So I, I, mm -hmm. I look forward to that happening eventually. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about the other part of your life, which is historical reenactment. Oh, I thought you were going to say being the father of a 14 year old, because believe me, that is the <laughs> other part of my life. Uh, <laughs> historical reenactments. I, I should be dressed up for this. Here I am in modern clothes. Uh, I spend an inordinate amount of my time and money dressed up uh, for either the Middle Ages or ancient Greece. I used to do yeah, 18th okay. century North America, but I've sort of moved on from that period because having a beard is uh -huh. strictly anathema in the 18th century. Uh, um, uh, right. So medieval reenacting and ancient Greek reenacting are deeply experiential. To me, it's always experimental archaeology. Uh, tomorrow, okay. tomorrow morning when I wake up, I will pack the car to go uh, off into the Adirondacks for six days with a bunch of friends in oh. medieval kit. And mostly what we're wow. going to do is cook and use tools so it's not fighting, it's nothing to do with war. We're gonna be living like wealthy peasants. Uh -huh. um, but, yeah, good idea. <laughs> well, but it's, it's, um, it's very experiential. It's really handy to know how to actually use a medieval ax, um, to know how very different a medieval shovel is from a modern shovel, just as an example. In the Middle Ages, you use a pick to break up ground. Your shovel is made of wood, probably doesn't even have an iron mm -hmm. toe, and it is only to pick up the wow. loose dirt and move it somewhere else. It's like a little platform to move. Wow. You can't even carve uh -huh. the ground with it. And that, I mean, that may not sound wildly interesting. It may never make it into a novel, but people do say nice things about my books because they have the details. And a lot of those details come from yeah. reenacting. Oh, I'll also be fishing well, I, with medieval I, fishing tackle. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's amazing. For real fish. <laughs> Wow, amazing. You know, you're not going to be that far away from me. I'm, I'm in sort of central New York. My Adirondacks are about an hour and a half. Well, you should come uh, up and visit us. Come up and have dinner. Well, yeah, maybe. Where, where are you guys? Where are you, how am I going to find you? I don't have my medieval GPS. <laughs> uh, I could give you a GPS address when we're done. Saturday night, we're making ricotta gnocchi, which is a medieval Italian dish. It's quite good, really. I didn't realize gnocchi was, was medieval. Wow, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so oh, somewhere... If I, if I ran around the house with my camera, I could show you how we're packing on every surface in this house. And somewhere close awesome. by is my medieval Italian cookbook, which is pretty fabulous. And, and I have to say, I think when people look at me on the internet, and partially it's because of the way I represent myself, you think swords yeah. and armor. But yeah. uh, I'd like to say that... Cook which, you, which you do. Which you absolutely. Do. But cooking and dance are maybe more fun and definitely more yeah. part of a, everyone's day-to-day -day life and certainly mine like uh if you aren't eating medieval food you're just putting on a costume yeah no that's true i mean i, I used to be a uh, professor of hist uh, not professor I shouldn't say, it was high school I used to be a teacher of history and it was the big big highlight for, for my kids every year when we would get together and do a semi-realistic medieval feast with trenchers and and cool. you know, stuff like that yeah <laughs> so so yeah, hey, um, at the end you can after we're done here, you can give me your coordinates, and maybe I'll maybe I'll hop on by. You'd be if welcome. Frog cold. You, you should. You should Thank join you. us. You have you have yeah, a great beard. 
great mustache, perfect <laughs> hair. <laughs> yeah, it's. You should tell my dad this is a great mustache. It's, it's I, I a realize, shame of our family that we're not able to do better than this. I realize <laughs> what I'm about to say is probably going to be nationalistically offensive. But although there were no Russians that I know of serving in mercenary companies in Italy, there were a lot of a lot yeah. of Hungarians. And Eastern Hungarians and Western Russians would have had a lot in common culturally. I think you yeah. should come. It's true, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, maybe, maybe. Well, we'll hope, hopefully this silly, uh, this cold will go away and my nine-month nine pregnant wife won't, you know, start going to labor in the next Oh, days. maybe maybe you shouldn't come. <laughs> that, that's her talking right now, yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, one part of that historical reenactment, which is the, the pilgrimage that you did recently. Um, some of my viewers might know what, what the uh, Santiago de Compostela uh, pilgrimage um, route is, but probably most don't. So maybe you can talk about that, what you did and why you did that. And um, sure. I'm just fascinated by so it. Yeah. I'm going to start by saying a super dangerous thing, which is that I'm religious. And I recognize <laughs> that that immediately makes me sound like maybe I voted for Donald Trump and maybe we should just dive down a whole bunch of ra rabbit holes. You're, 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 talking, you're talking to a deacon, so you're yeah, fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a sort of good old-fashioned Anglican. Uh, I go to church. I did theology in university, mostly for fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I mm -hmm. wouldn't really like to be tested on what I exactly believe. Uh, and I will yeah. totally admit that my life as a historian and my life as a Christian sometimes are in flat out conflict. We won't even uh -huh. go there. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, and some of it can be quite paradoxical. And sometimes I just sort of float along and don't worry about it too much. Regardless, uh, pilgrimage, is a really important part of most of the world's religions. Uh, yeah. I will say that on pilgrimage, uh, so I guess I should start at the beginning. A whole bunch of my friends and I went on the the Camino, the St. James de Capistela pilgrimage in medieval clothes with medieval mm -hmm. equipment. And um, Amazing. Uh, so five of the nine people who walked with us were completely not religious and were really just enjoying the medieval experience or the hike. But every mm -hmm. night at the albergues, and the albergues are as much like a medieval inn as you ever actually want to experience in your life. Every yeah. night at the albergues, yeah. people would gather around me and my friend Elizabeth because we would say evening prayers every night. And they'd go like, oh, no, wow. you're really doing this. So you're actually religious, which will give you an impression of how few people were actually religious. And it was just funny. Right. Nobody was ever mean-spirited about it. But I remember yeah. one night, like a whole crowd of young German hikers basically going like, wow, yeah. you guys are actually praying. That's hilarious. Have some wine, <laughs> which was fine. Uh, so we walked the Primitivo. Uh, the Primitivo that we walked. And by the way, let me start by saying there's no one Camino. I think there's 11 official yeah. Camino routes, but okay. you can start in Canterbury, England. You can start in Köln in Germany. Uh, I met someone who started in Moscow. So you can start wherever wow. you want to start and you can walk the whole thing. Mm -hmm. We met a young woman from uh, uh, New Zealand who had taken a ship to South America, walked to Toronto, then walked to St. John, New Brunswick, then got on a boat to Denmark, then walked Home. to Berlin, and then walked down to the Compostela, to, to the Camino. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So, so my Camino was nothing like that. We flew, <laughs> we flew into Oviedo in northern Spain, 
and uh, we walked about 380 kilometers in 14 days. Wow, okay. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I've had a pretty good life. Uh, it was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, really, the scenery was incredible. I had no idea that northern Spain looked like mountainous Ireland, like green, right, right, yeah. beautiful farms, um, really nice, friendly people. We were in an area so wild, uh, we met a wild boar trapped in a tree. Nick, Nicholas, you'll like wow. this. You know how that happens in medieval tales? People come across yes, an yes. animal. We came across yes. a wild yeah. boar caught yeah. between two trees, like for real. And then yeah, we wow. told the, and then we told the local conservation officer where to find him, because uh, he's going to be there. He'll still be there if somebody doesn't let him out. Uh, oh yeah, goodness, and wow. it was, I don't know, it was amazing. It was the most medieval experience I've ever had. Staying in modern albergues was still like being in a Dungeons and Dragons inn. You know, forty people sleeping in a giant common room, and like one tiny yeah. kitchen where you can cook your food, and everybody sort of sits at the same table. A couple of nights we were in actual medieval inns that made it feel even more medieval because it was super yeah. medieval. Uh, wow. At the end of a 30 kilometer walk, your one glass of wine is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Oh, um, I can imagine. <laughs> and uh, you know, we, we entered a little town called Bores where every house sits on top of its cow shed and there were live cows yeah. in every house. Wow. Which you really read about in the Middle Ages. But in Asturias, yeah. in northern Spain, you can still see that. Amazing. Incredible. So, so uh, when's the memoir coming out? Uh, it's not going to be a memoir. It's probably going to be a major chase scene. See, one of the things uh -huh. that I had never imagined before I walked the Camino, uh, the Primitivo is super mountainous, like up and down. Mm -hmm. And we kept having the experience that you could see people just a few hundred meters away, but they were a half day behind you. Wow. And that makes for great fiction, right? Think of the, yes. think of the chase scene you can have through the mountains, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I changed on the spot how part of book three of the Cold Iron Masters and Mages series, I think it's going to have a long chase scene in the mountains. It was going to have a chase scene, okay. and now I just went like, okay, I have to like relive this experience. So... Yeah, yeah, good for you. No, I mean, like, like you said, some of your readers make the make a point of uh, noting the level of detail that you put into it, down to like what color the clothes are and what kind of weave and the stuff like that. So this this sort of thing is only going to make it better. So well, I'm excited about. I that. want to put in a pitch for another author. I don't know if you know Celia yeah. Friedman, C.S. Friedman. Um, no. So she was my like adolescent game master. Uh, she was okay. She was a huge spec fic author in in her day. I think she still produces, but uh, okay. her Gerald Tarrant books in the eighties and early nineties were super well received and very popular. And uh, she, by profession, was a costumer. And oh yeah, so she kind of got me into the notion. The first thing she'd make us do when we rolled up D and D characters was draw them. <laughs> And we had to then Fantastic. explain what we were wearing. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, that was super boring. And then it became interesting. <laughs> and then it became exciting. Yeah. I, so, yeah. you know, it's not just wearing the clothes. It's reading about clothes. And I, I can be really boring on the subject of sword belts. 
I hate people <laughs> who wear long swords on their backs because oh uh, yeah talk about that talk because it's in every single fantasy novel now so so tell me tell me why that's wrong well it's a super hard draw it's really yeah. hard to draw um so the biggest problem with a two-handed sword drawing it is that it's longer yeah. than your arm you can imitate right. this with a stick or a broom handle yeah just try and draw something out of your belt that is longer than your arm it's like yeah. Hmm, not coming out. So you could die trying to draw your sword. And if you think about reaching back over your head and pulling a long sword straight forward, it, it has no angle off your body. And by the way, right. the scabbard had to stand up straight behind you, right? Like it's not yeah. still pinned to your back or you only drew it this far. So right. like in a bar or an inn, if somebody shoves yeah. you against the wall, they then beat the crap out of you and you never draw your sword. <laughs> And no one right. would have done that historically. Like, and then it's an absurd way to wear a sword on horseback. And I know this is bad news to Tolkien fans, but most people in the world who wanted to go more than five miles went on horseback. So, yeah. um, uh, and there's like dozens of different rigs, just like modern cops and SWAT team officers and so on have all kinds of different rigs for handguns. There were all kinds of different rigs for long swords and you can study them, you can look them up. And not a one of them was across the back. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah. I will tell you that the most popular way to carry a really big longsword, the kind that fantasy loves, is yeah. unscabbarded under your arm or over your shoulder. You awesome. just walk around with it over your shoulder. Yeah, that's so much cooler, right? Yeah, it's just so walking much cooler. Around like it's that. right there. In, in a bar fight, you can just bring it right out. Um, and then most people who carried those giant swords had a child, because child soldiers weren't a problem then, had a child to just yeah. like take care of the sword. You just hand it to your kern and he cleans it, gives it back to you clean. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, Aurora Simmons here says, it's easier to walk through a brush though, though with the with strap to your back. It's fine yeah. to wear it on your back if you don't need it. Also, well, who's Aurora carrying Simmons, your bedrolls? Aurora Simmons would know because she's worn a bunch of long swords. So she, she <laughs> has my total respect. But in this instance, I would say I've worn my long sword through brush through on a waist hanger and it's really not that bad in fact mm -hmm. one of the things i love about the real italian rig i use is that as you go over obstacles the way it's built it sort of follows the obstacles that the scabbard just trails over and goes back to its position all the time like it was built to do that nice. which it is nice nice awesome um so tell me a little bit about the um about your actual fighting in, in medieval harness. Um, how does that work? What are the rules? Can you, are you using like blunt, blunt blades or sharp blades or how does that, how does it work? Yeah, uh, so anybody who really wants to deep dive into this can look at the International Armatsare Society website. Uh, I belong to the International Armatsare Society. I will actually be testing for a new level later this year. Oh, yeah. And so will Aurora Simmons, who was just uh, talking on there. Um, Cool. And, well, to, she had to mention that she was totally joking, by the uh, way. So, <laughs> so there's, there's a, a whole set of rules, which I will describe briefly. So the ideal, and a lot of this is historically based, the ideal armor to wear for competitive fighting is late 14th century armor. And the reason is that it's a mix of plate and mail. And mm -hmm. it's a, a mix that leaves some mail exposed. And that is pretty much how we score there's almost nothing you can do, even with a poleaxe or a spear, yeah. that will penetrate plate armor. So the helmet, uh -huh. the breastplate. But 
any thrust will penetrate, any heavy thrust will penetrate chainmail. And people have done these tests. We've done the tests. You can take riveted ring mail, really nice, small riveted ring mail, yeah. and you can put it yeah. over a dead pig. And with a flick yeah. of your fingers, a real medieval longsword will just go pop right through the mail. And wow. it may not go very deep, but I promise you, you can only take so many two-inch deep stabs to your groin or your underarm before you're really desperately unhappy. Um, <laughs> uh, and if you consider the lack of antibiotics, you may just die later anyway. Uh, right. So in the IAS rules, mostly blows to your plate armor don't count, and blows to your chain mail do count. Mostly thrusts count, which... I have to tell you, there are other organizations that do medieval fighting and they don't like thrusting because they consider it dangerous. What they mean right. by that is they don't want to pay the money to wear good armor. And so they don't <laughs> have thrusting. And it's funny because if you look at all medieval weapons, the spear, the spike on the poleaxe, the longsword, they're all thrusting weapons. Thrusting is the right. only way to kill a person in heavy armor. So it's kind of right. silly to be cutting at people in armor. Yeah. Super silly in my yeah. opinion. Uh, anyway, uh, we also have wrestling that would look remarkably like MMA to people uh, because another wow. way to win a fight is to immobilize somebody or throw them to the ground, uh, pin their arms. Uh, we don't actually do joint locks that lead to breaks. We could, but then we wouldn't be friends. Um, but, right. <laughs> but people will set up a joint lock and then you're expected to tap out just like in any martial art. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so we have locks, throws, holds, and then the scoring of the weapon against the armor. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, um, we have a I'll question here from... Go. We have a question from, from Zach Juritsa who says, what about bows? Can, can, uh, can a nicely strong arrow uh, penetrate plate? So basically, no. I realize that the English Warbow Society likes to pretend that it can, but uh, there's no yes. evidence. Um, and uh, okay, look, I recognize that there are a handful of people in the world who can pull a 220-pound longbow, and they can penetrate non-hardened steel. And there's a really good book, which I recommend to everyone who wants to argue about this, called The Night and the Blast Furnace. Uh -huh. And it is about exactly how armor was made in the Middle Ages, and a whole oh, lot of testing of existing armor and a whole lot of pure scientific metallurgy and a whole lot of contact examples of weapons against various metallurgical samples and a whole lot of super nerdy information that I love, like how much medieval chainmail turns out to be ancient Roman chainmail that was just continuously repurposed, which is amazing. Fantastic. Um, but uh, by and large, an arrow from a bow shot from more than say 20 yards is absolutely not going to penetrate plate armor. But, wow. okay. here comes the but. Mm -hmm. A third of my body area is only covered by chainmail, and the arrow will penetrate that. And then also, okay. if you've ever met a World War II veteran of a tank, they will yeah. all agree that, well, in a war game, you can sit there in your Tiger tank being shot by an American Sherman, and you in yeah. a game, know that every 75 millimeter round is going to bounce off. But in real yeah. life, after the third one hits your turret, you start really thinking yeah. about getting the hell out of your tank. And that also yeah. applied at a morale level yeah. in the Middle Ages. Right. So 
If right. you're walking forward into the arrow storm, and we know this because the greatest knight of the Middle Ages wrote about it, every English arrow or Turkish arrow or Hungarian arrow that hits your helmet or your plate armor makes you think, <laughs> damn it, that could have been in my arm. That could be in my groin. I could be dead now. Yeah. And really soon yeah. you go know, like, I'm not walking forward any further into the Janissaries or the or the English archers or the French archers. Right. That being said, only the crossbow, the arbalast really, and the musket will just penetrate plate armor. And by the yeah. period that we reenact, the rich had hardened steel plate armor, which you can literally drive a truck over and it won't deform. And you wow. cannot, uh, my, my good armor pieces would probably stop a nine millimeter bullet. Like, I don't wow. want to test it to find out. But sure. hardened yeah. spring steel, it's like not easy to penetrate. Wow, wow, amazing. Oh, <laughs> it's amazing it didn't last for longer then, I guess. But I guess, uh, well, I guess once you get into cannons, there's not much you can you do. If you read right? The Night in the Blast Furnace, and I'm going to be super sciencey here, you'll discover that yeah. by the end of the 15th century, they stopped making hardened steel armor because it cost too much. In uh, fact, okay. they stopped making steel armor altogether because they could make huh. it just out of iron and do with sheer thickness what they had been doing with fancy metallurgy. And because of that, they started the myth of the gendarme who was so heavy he had to be witched onto a horse. That no is, way. Okay. That is the <laughs> so-called early modern period. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. I didn't know that. <laughs> I should know that, but I didn't. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about your, your writing process. Um, and we can, we can dive in with your, with your historical knowledge as well as we It's go. all pastry. But um, It's all pastry. All pastry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, tell me more. Why pastry? <laughs> uh, because I work at a local uh, bakery with a fabulous okay. big table and a place to write and great coffee and really good mm -hmm. pastries. So I allow myself two a day. I think some of my, my readers think I eat 20 a day, but it would be really hard <laughs> to keep my girlish figure. Uh, yes. Uh, and fight in armor. And, you know, armor is super unforgiving of changing size. Yeah. Like, Okay, yeah. It's not your friend. It's made of steel. <laughs> so it if it fits you at a certain weight, you have to stay that weight all the time. And that's uh, that's for real. Anyway, my writing is about pastry. Uh I really like I really like to write with people around. I do not write well oh. by myself. Sitting alone okay. is not my style. Um Interesting, yeah. And uh I get up every morning, I try to be at work by 8.30, and by 2.30 in the afternoon I'm done, and I do absolutely nothing yeah. in between. I do not look at social media, I do not advertise, I do not, <laughs> I do nothing, I just write. Yeah. From the time yeah. I start to the time I'm done. Uh, yeah. I won't say I never experienced writer's block, but my dad, who's been a writer since he was 20 years old and is now 87, says that writer's block uh -huh. is a lie that writers tell themselves to not work. And yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I, well, it's my dad's view. I have a couple of times encountered insoluble character problems or temporarily yeah. insoluble character problems. Yeah. But my father taught me that you can't leave your computer without writing five pages, no matter what you think is going on. Oh, wow. And That's great. Good for him. That has been <laughs> my rule since I started writing. So 
Fantastic. If I can't, uh, if I can't get on topic, I'll write a different scene. Sometimes I yeah. literally will just write X, 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 X in a long line <laughs> all the way across the page, and then I'll just move on. And sometimes yeah. I just leave a note for myself saying, somehow or other, a ranther has to figure out that he's not in love with Dahlia. Right? That's going to be complicated. Yeah, that's going to no, be that's, getting that's into fine, the mind yeah. of late adolescence. I'll just cover that off tomorrow. There you go. Yeah. No, I, and I, th I think there's something to be said about, about uh, writer's block being a bit of a myth. Because it's often not about the writing. It's about the writer, right? I mean, it's, it's not... It's it's the writer himself that needs to you know get a little bit of fresh air, or needs to read something, or needs to distract himself, or maybe the well's dry, or something like that. Um, or as Cat Wolf is suggesting, perhaps the pastry was wrong, and so Cat Wolf is asking, what pastry is the most motivating one for writing? <laughs> uh, I have a question for you, but I'll ask, I'll answer Cat first. Uh, the most right. <laughs> motivating is definitely an almond croissant. Uh, almond croissant okay. is the pastry of choice when when the going gets tough. The tough get an almond croissant. And nice. <laughs> uh, my question for you, Nick, is do you find when you're yeah. writing that if you have a problem, sometimes you can solve it by reading somebody else's writing? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if me if, too. If, if I can't, if I'm not writing, then I then then I know I have to set aside my writing and go read something. And oftentimes, it's completely not connected to fantasy or the time period that it's set in. Uh, even if you know, because most of my fantasy is at least. Um, at least mildly based on some historical period. Yeah, I'll just go read some Jane Austen or I'll read um, some Robert McFarlane or something completely off the wall. And, and it's amazing what kind of the kind of things that suddenly you get this detail or even the way a word is, uh, the, sentence, the way a sentence is phrased and suddenly you're like, okay, now I know exactly what to do with that entire scene that I was having trouble with. So yeah. <laughs> uh, Nicholas, have you read The Czar of Love and Techno? No. Should I? I think you should. Oh wait, that's... That's the Cat Valenti, isn't it? No, it's Morrow. Morrow. Okay, all right, I'll write it down. Anthony Morrow? Someone help me out. Yeah, okay. Um, it's Zarov. Oh, I have heard about this. Yes, I haven't read it yet, though. It's an absolutely fantastic book. And rather like what you were saying about mine, I, yeah. I won't say I hated it, but I spent a while going like, really? Really are we going to do this? <laughs> Apparent, disconnected yeah. short stories don't make a novel. Yeah. And then gradually I realized okay. that they sure do make a novel. It was, oh, wow. it's, it's actually brilliant and I won't even tell you how because that would be a spoiler. But okay. I was, I was, right. <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm going to run off and do this anytime, but I thought this is, someone should do this in fantasy. Like somebody should use this very brilliant set of plot devices. And he's just a flat good writer. Anyway, I, yeah. I was, I was re-enlivened by him. I kind of like left that book going like, wow, I want to be a better writer. And I want to like, yeah, yeah. pay more attention to these little details of how one scene feeds another scene. Yeah, no, totally. For me, it's oftentimes, especially, I mean, I read a lot of fantasy, so it's usually the non-fantasy that gives me the moments of, of epiphany. So um, in, ge in general, uh, Christian, does, does writing energize you or does it exhaust you or is it both? Totally energizes me. I haven't really written very much for a week because I just put out this thing, which I will describe later, which is a reader's yeah. guide to cold iron. And that required some writing, but there was a lot of like coordination of illustrations and a lot of just learning how the digital media universe works to get things onto mm -hmm. my website, which I also updated for the first time in three years. And, oh, yeah. um, okay. <laughs> uh, and I feel weird and kind of like flabby because I haven't written in a week. 
And yeah, interesting. I came home from Spain and Italy because you were asking about fighting in armor, and I really didn't even get started. I fought in my favorite tournament in Italy after the Camino, and that was quite an experience. Doing it right after the Camino was an experience, and then doing the Camino, yeah. a huge experience. And I and then we ran an event here almost immediately called the Deed of Alms, which we did to raise money for homeless people, and all oh, wow. of those things will result in writing. And I have not sat I down guess. and done that writing yet. So I feel like wow. a wow. fire hydrant that has been pumped, you know, like mm -hmm. there's a lot of pressure mm -hmm. to write. Yeah, it totally energizes me. How do you, do you, does it tire you out or does it get you going? So my, my problem is that, that I'm nowhere near your, your uh, situation where I can, where my writing can, um, can support me. So I have to do a lot of, a lot of different things um, to support myself financially. Um, and, so it, if you don't write for, you know this, if you don't write for a while, there's a bit of a hump to get over. And if, the longer you don't write, the, the higher that, that initial climb is. So sometimes that climb is so excruciating that I'm almost like, I almost have to go home and sleep afterwards if I don't get over it. But as soon as there's some sort of flow, especially if it's two or three days in a row and I'm already starting to see the story in my sleep, um, <laughs> you know, and, and dream it out. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm having dialogue in my head, you know, in, in between conversations with people, then it gives me so much energy, but, but it's scary also at the same time, because even when I sit down, you have to get past that, that brain stage, like your, your brain gets in the way, your, your analytical brain. Um, and, but once I get past that, then, then it's nothing but nothing but energy. I just have to remind myself sometimes that, that that for, will come. For what um, it's worth, I, um, I always, when I've been away more than one day, I reread a great deal of what I like I read back and if I've been away for more than yeah. two weeks I read the whole book before yeah. I start Yeah, I do that too and usually when I yeah, read I the whole too. book I find things I want to fix and in the process of fixing them I'm back in the headspace and then writing yeah. just just comes you know it's it's in, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of writers a lot of very famous experts who know what they're talking about will tell you that you should never have your editing hat and your writing hat on at the same time and i i find that approach of reading a little bit before i start writing the next scene to be invaluable and i i think it's absolutely i can't do it without it so i don't know what they're talking about but <laughs> um i'll yeah. i will limit myself to saying that like raising children writing yeah. is different for each person, there is not a uniform way. And one thing I feel that no one should ever do is really take anyone else's advice on writing. Like every person comes to writing a different way. And every time I see one of those stupid masterclasses advertised on Facebook, I want to say like, no, stop, don't do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not learn how to that. write like Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> yeah. You can learn to write exactly like somebody far more famous than you, but that won't sell any books or make you a better writer. Nope. And you won't enjoy it. You'll hate it. Um, was there ever an early experience in your life where you, uh, what, what does that say? Oh, it's backwards. Uh, oh, it's Sorrow of Love. And, oh, it's signed. Look at that. Is it signed or is that part of the no, cover? No, I think this is my wife's copy. Oh, cool. It's just backwards, so I had to... <laughs> I know. I hadn't realized it was going to come backwards. Oh, well. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Um, so here's a question um, about uh, some early experience maybe you had in your life when you realized that stories had power. I suppose your dad being a writer would help. <laughs> uh, sorry, you have to say that again. I missed the last part. 
So was there ever an early, an early experience in your life when you realized that stories had, had real power to like change people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand. Yeah. First of all, because my dad read them, wrote them. And I think I read one of his books when I was 11 or 12 and was sort of yeah. flabbergasted that my dad wrote this. He didn't yeah. seem that abnormal until that moment. Uh, <laughs> but I grew up with stories. My grandfather told stories really well. My dad tells a good story. My grandmother told a good story. Uh, and I've always sort of loved the power of, of the story. And I guess, especially the personal story, like the, the story spoken in a voice. I think part of the appeal of audiobooks is that it's like having yeah. your dad or your brother read you yeah. a story, yeah. right? Like, here's the voice just telling you the story. And it's, it's, it's very Homeric. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, super powerful. I would like to say that I wrote a fantasy novel when I was 16 years old that I promise no one will ever see because it is so oh, come bad. on. So bad. Come on. So bad. <laughs> Elves in space. Elves in space. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I, I, I had ninja riders, ninja warriors riding on bears in space. So that's, that's a, <laughs> okay. a second, I think. I'm not. <laughs> anyway. Um, so t talk to us about Cold Iron. Uh, you know what's funny? There is a character in my 17-year-old, 16-year-old fantasy novel who uh -huh. actually made it into Cold Iron. No uh, way. Okay. <laughs> and that's bizarre. I guess I've always wanted to have this character. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Cold Iron is a super hard book to describe. And it's funny because I think because people imagine I'm all about history. I am continually yeah. asked to describe it in historical terms, but where <laughs> Red Knight was very definitely culturally set in a mm -hmm. European high Middle Ages, late 14th century artifact culture, Cold Iron mm -hmm. is way too complicated to describe in a sentence, even okay. that one. Okay. Um, and it's also very strongly about the world we actually live in. Okay, mm -hmm. now, it's not, it's a fantasy world, but it's about a million shades of gray and having to make decisions and having to decide if some things are fake news and having to decide mm -hmm. if people are telling the truth or lying. Um, mm -hmm. There's a famous, uh, maybe not famous enough, philosopher, uh, theologian really, uh, named Duns Scotus. And Duns Scotus said uh, that the problem with reasoning by example is that if you worked all your life in a blacksmith's shop, you might come to the conclusion that iron is hot, but <laughs> that in fact, despite thousands of examples of horseshoes and hammers that were hot, the truth is that iron comes out of the ground cold and is usually cold. And that's why my book is called Cold Iron, because it okay. is about not reasoning from example. And, oh, wow. uh, and it's also, I mean, it's a trilogy and there's a lot of sword fights in it, but it's also about violence and about why people use violence or don't use violence. Um, a long time ago, I'm going to say a dangerous thing. We'll see how many people leave the conversation. I, <laughs> I came to a disconcerting thought about Star Wars. I asked myself, uh -huh. how come the Jedi Knights never even ask their opponents 
to change their minds. They just reach for their yeah. lightsabers. And, yeah. and I thought like, if we had knights in our civil society, yeah. wouldn't we want them to be like super careful? In fact, aren't mm -hmm. we kind of annoyed by how our police officers behave and they're not even knights, yep. right? So wouldn't we want our knights with super powerful lightsabers to be very, very careful about when they engaged in violence? And that, yeah. that question sort of informed how Cold Iron goes. But it's a high magic world. It's definitely epic fantasy. Uh, yeah. It's definitely got grim dark touches because I also wanted to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, which interests me greatly. Uh, I have some military experience and I have a lot of fans and readers who have a lot more military experience than me and a real yeah. experience of post-traumatic stress disorder. And they keep writing me these really amazing essays saying, please write about this. Please remind people mm -hmm. that you know, and one thing, I had a guy a couple of years ago say this, and I, I love to say this live. Uh, he said, come on, you and I both know that nobody knows what sword cut they used to put down their opponent. Like, he, he yeah. basically said, like, we all know that once the shit starts, you have no idea what, you, you're just functioning. You just do that thing, yeah. Yeah. and people call it yeah. being in the black or in the mirror or whatever, yeah. but you just you know, you do what you have to do and then you sort of come out the other side and really sometimes only right. then do you think, oh, oh, I did that thing and I did that other thing. And I'm just trying to touch on this. I don't want to ruin the enjoyment of fantasy. I yeah. am a little bit against, uh, I want to be careful what I say here, against the pornography of violence. Like yes. violence just for the sake of violence. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then at a whole other level, and it is a whole other level, when I started writing these books, they were actually going to be about swordsmanship. And I sort of changed okay. my mind and made it a much more complicated spy novel-ish thing. But every sword fight, bar none, is different. And each one of them is to teach a different lesson. So oh my the sword community should read the books and say, oh, this is about this and this is about this. And it's not that it's That's super awesome. technical. It's just like yeah, yeah. at one point they fight in the dark and at one point they are yeah. trying not to be heard. And there are all these little, oh, wow. awesome. little awesome. points. And I'm trying to sort of riff my way through on all the different things you can do with, yeah. with various kinds of violence. No, you know, it's fascinating listening to you talk about this because I, I honestly believe, and I've talked about this a lot with, with other authors and, and, and when I'm asked to speak at, at functions and things, but fantasy seems to be the best maybe um, genre in which to transmute the the truths that we're trying to express about our everyday life um, in, a, in a way that that can be passed along to people uh, without any sort of preachiness or without any kind of uh, any taint of ideology maybe we can say in a way that they can just accept it and and um, kind of absorb it in a uh, in a much more essential and a much more um, natural way than if you were to just tell them something you know yeah, what do you I think, think? Do you think that's true? I think fantasy is maybe an even better venue than science fiction. Uh, yeah, science fiction so too, yeah. presupposes some things, and fantasy presupposes almost nothing. You know, like yeah. you can do anything with magic, literally, and that's that kind of releases you to tell whatever story you want to tell. Um, yeah, absolutely, I wanted to talk about. And this part is historical. I wanted to talk about why multiculturalism always triumphs over simple yeah. nationalism and racism. And uh, 
hey, historically speaking, nobody has ever yet had a successful empire based on we're superior to you. Um, yeah. Uh, most of the successful empires say, oh, come on with us, you'll be okay. Um, right, and as soon as they as soon as they make that switch, then they start going to decadence yeah. and start falling apart. And I, I sort of wanted to make that point and some other points because we seem to be at a moment. You know, we're at a moment yeah. where at least in the United States and some other countries I could name, people are openly yeah. espousing things that in my generation we just find appalling. I mean, <laughs> we grew up playing not cops and robbers, but Americans and Nazis. So I, oh, wow. <laughs> I and no one ever wanted to be the Nazis. Um, no, <laughs> uh, no kidding. <laughs> uh, so I just find it's, it's, it's definitely a moment. And I wanted to write about that moment and write about what it looks like to me when somebody wants to turn the clock back and yeah. reinvent a past that was really grim. Uh, I'm a historian in my heart, I admit it. And I think perhaps people who don't study history more easily yes. skip over what yes, central absolutely. Germany was like during the Thirty Years' War. You know, like, oh yeah, it was no big deal. Armies just ran over peasants for 60 years. No, no, that was yeah. terrible, actually. Actually, that was really terrible. Um, yeah, and and yeah. You, can't just, you can't just skip over that. Uh, and it's funny because there's a whole branch of history that does skip over that called military history. And why, yes. I, I got really incensed a couple of years ago when one of my book covers referred to me as a military historian. And I'm like, oh, 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 please. I'm very interested in military <laughs> history, but not the kind yeah. that goes like, oh, forget the raped women and the dead children. That, we're just interested yeah. in the uniforms yeah. in the battlefield. Um, no, history Yeah, and, was, and how they arrange themselves against each other and all that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah that is yeah. a very arid, non-studious form of military history. Uh, and it's yeah. kind of a big lie because it pretends that the the people who had active commission in the war are the only people who mattered. Right. It's kind of funny right. too because yeah, in the true. world of Me Too and the world of discussing openly sexual harassment and and you know people's role in these things, I find that very often we don't do the same thing with violence. We don't talk about the difference between being yeah. a fighter pilot and being a refugee. You know, the fighter pilot has yeah. a huge investment in the war, a lot of training, and probably is completely yeah. willing to fly every mission. Whereas the Syrian woman trying yeah. to get her two children to Canada, no interest in the war whatsoever, did not volunteer, yeah. did not yeah. want to be there. And that's not the story that's usually told in fantasy. I'm not saying it's I true. left up to it's tell true. that yeah. story, but, um, you know, yeah. because you're so interested in Russian history, a ton of Russian history invests in that and a ton of Russian history, especially like dealing with Kazakhs and stuff like that, you're talking about people who survived vast amounts of oppression to try and build a life that was completely different from the life they were. Eh, there's a lot of good stories there, but they're tough stories to tell. Absolutely. No, they are. They're very complex. They're very difficult. There's a lot of darkness there, but there's a lot of light too. And that's, yeah. that's what I, you know, you're speaking about a little, little bits of grimdark, and that's why I, I can take my grimdark in little bits, as long as there there's equal <laughs> equal weight given to the fact that there's still that bit of light uh, that comes through in, in small and unexpected places. It's like this story about you're speaking about the Nazis. There was an amazing story um, I, I read. For all of the all of the blackballing we we make of the uh, and correct uh, blackballing of the Soviet Union and all they did and Stalin and all that, but there was this amazing story about uh, that that I read about. 
how the Nazis had taken a bunch of kids um, from deep in the Russian uh, wilderness and they had taken them to an experimental hospital and they were drawing blood from them. They were from eight to 10, something like that, very small children, because children's blood has more vitality. And so they were using that blood to, to infuse wounded Nazi soldiers. And uh, the, the, it was an epic story of heroism where this one soldier got them all into a plane um, as the Nazis were about to get him, and they actually the Nazis started to shoot at the at the plane, and the plane started started to go down. The cockpit was in flames, and he landed the plane, even though his feet were gone. He didn't have legs anymore because they had burned off. Uh, and he got he landed. He was still alive. The kids got out. Uh, they they came out and they were saved. And then he died. Um, so uh, that's that's the kind of thing that that um, really. Yeah, sometimes we don't hear enough about that about that nowadays. We Once in a while, the heroes the win one. Uh, it's a great yeah, story. Exactly. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, there's a few questions from the uh, from the audience that I'd like to get into. Um, first, first off, there's a there's a technical question. Where do you get proper uh, coaches for sword fighting? Uh, ask whoever is who, where where is he or she. Uh, I'm not sure. This came, this came from the comment section. So okay, well, uh, Jack uh, Judas, if you can tell us where, where I, you're from. I recommend that you go to the International Armitsare Society. So Armitsare is spelled A R M I Z A R E. Armitsare. Go to the International Armitsare Society <laughs> website. Uh, get on one of the chat groups and find yourself an instructor. There are first quality sword instructors, frankly, in almost every major city in North America. And if you can't find one, I recommend that you, I actually have a blog on this subject, and so I recommend people read my blog. But no, no, it's not about me. It's just about how to find a sword instructor. But if you can't find a sword instructor, take uh, Iaido, Kendo, or Western Fencing. They'll all get you the same place. and um, And Look at the IAS website. There is how-to videos to get you started and to take you really quite far. And there's ways to do distance learning. And I really recommend that. Cool. Very nice. Um, and a, a more uh, philosophical question from the same, uh, from the same person. I'm having trouble with, po with writing poetry about war. I usually choke. How do, you, how do you get back to the proper state of mind for writing if you're writing about difficult subjects? <clears throat> Writing poetry about war, uh, a Western tradition. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, our viewer if he's ever read any Lovelace. So Lovelace is a 17th century English poet, um, what we call a cavalier poet. He fought for the king during the English Civil War, and uh, he wrote a lot of really good poetry that nonetheless betrays almost nothing about how war works. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, Robert Service uh, is a, I want to say Canadian or maybe English poet who wrote during World War I and writes very directly about <coughs> the experience of almost everything that I experienced and more. I mean, my military experience was not that shocking. Um, more like my grandfather's experience in the First World War of, you know, weeks and weeks and horror and dead bodies in the trenches and all those things. Yeah. Um, 
because I get inspiration for my writing from reading other people. So I, I would say that both Loveless and Robert Service are great poets who wrote great poetry about war and they're good sort of starter examples. Um, but the other thing I would say, meaning no offense to anyone, is that I would, I don't know who our viewer is, but I would say, if you're writing about love, you should have experienced love. And if you're writing about mm -hmm. sex, you should have experienced sex. And if you're gonna write about violence, you should have experienced violence. That writing poetry about war without a direct experience of war would not help anyone because poetry is really about helping other people share an experience, to me. I mean, that may be an aesthetic thing outside of the bounds of this. On the other hand, yeah. if the viewer has a direct experience of violence and war, uh, he or she should definitely be writing about it. It's the most helpful thing ever. Um, I'm, I'm sure you don't mean this when you're, when you're saying, but it sounds like you may have said something that's similar to write what you know, which I don't think is what you're saying, right? The, the, the uh, traditional, uh, <laughs> the, the most famous rule for writing, write what you know. Yeah, I, I both believe and don't believe right with what you know. Like, I, uh, wow, I could get in a lot of trouble here and I could also go down various rabbit holes. I will limit myself to saying, <laughs> there are some human experiences that you just make an ass of yourself writing about if you don't know how they work, right? The experience of mm -hmm. falling in love. If you don't know what falling in love is like, uh, you should probably yeah. just keep that for later. The experience yeah. of firing a flintlock musket, on the other hand, you can absolutely learn by watching a YouTube mm -hmm. and you don't have to experience mm -hmm. it directly. Uh, and, and in fact, I would say it is the most profound emotional experiences that are hard to duplicate if you have not had them. And one of the things that makes my 16-year-old yeah. writing so painful to read is that I am writing about a whole host of experiences that, quite frankly, I have not had. And, uh, wow, no yeah. one should ever read that. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe someday we'll convince you, but um, this actually... This actually goes on to a, another question that I had here. Um, it, it, it dovetails very well. Um, oh, where was that? Yeah, what kind of scene is the hardest for you to write? Um, scenes where people betray themselves. It's super common in real life. We all do it. But those moments where you know perfectly well what you're supposed to do, and you do the wrong thing. The, I wrote an entire book about Alexander the Great called God of War, and the whole book was painful mm -hmm. to write because the whole book is about yeah. this sort of superhuman human being who consistently, I mean, by military history standards, he's fantastic, but by any human standards, he was a monster, yeah. which is what Aristotle called yeah. him. And, and so I wrote about yeah. that, and you know, ultimately, Sometimes you do write what you know. What betrayals do you know? The ones you did yourself. So the whole book was like me looking at the yeah. darkest parts of myself, making myself into all of Alexander's oh, feelings. Man. Not Alexander's greatness, but Alexander's Ugh. like fuck up if you'll pardon the expression, and searching that wow. out really carefully. Yeah. Ooh, good fun. Went on and on. My 14-year-old <laughs> is laughing in the background, by the way. It's great, to, great for her to know that dad spent so much time failing.
<laughs> it's okay. It's probably a good thing for her to know that. <laughs> but those are the hardest scenes to me to write. And then the next hardest is how it's not hard. It's a joy, but it's a hard joy. How people actually communicate. So in Cold Iron, and I did start out to talk about Cold Iron, and then I sort of drifted off into another subject. Yeah. In Cold Iron, That's okay. I have two characters. <laughs> the They're sort of almost co-protagonists. The, the protagonist mm -hmm. and the protagonist's mm, friend, sometime girlfriend. I won't spoil this, but Arantha and Dahlia don't always get along. Everything doesn't go well. And yet, uh -huh. as the books progress, they begin to develop, I hope, that kind of communication that like old married people have. And that yeah, is very yeah. hard to write, where people speak in code, fight in code, yeah. make yeah. up in code. And it's hard. I don't want it to make it hard for the reader to read, but I want to give yeah. it that tone of easy familiarity that we know from our parents and know from our own lives. And uh -huh. uh, if I can criticize all of fantasy in one blow and thus lose all my friends, yeah. often fantasy isn't that great at dealing with the banality of day-to-day -day relationship stuff. Oh yeah. And in a way oh, yeah. that's okay. Like what you write and what I wrote in Red Knight, what that has in common is we both write deliberate epic. Yeah. And, and that in a way frees us from spending all our time on how our protagonist gets along exactly yeah. with his best friend, his dad. Actually, sometimes we have to deal with that, but that's not what our books are about. Father, <laughs> son, yes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but in a way, that's a cheat. And for some people, it's why Grim, or not Grimdark, why Epic isn't that much fun. People want right. to dive in and see that. And I'll admit yeah. that books like The Czar of Love and Techno remind me of how important we all know everyone has experienced the feeling of having a fight with your spouse or girlfriend and carrying that fight throughout your day and then uh -huh. imagine that you're commanding a mercenary company so now are you like <laughs> yes. cruel to everybody in your company all day that's not good leadership so i yeah. those scenes can be very tricky to try and handle all the complexity that is any human being, much less two or three human beings. Yeah, good mm -hmm. fun. Yeah, no, it, it's great. Um, yeah, and, and but of course, whenever, whenever you do finish those scenes, those are the ones that stand out the most, aren't they? I mean, those are the ones that people remember the most, they're the ones that you remember the most, they're the ones that are most rewarding. Well, they're the ones that I remember the most, but then one of my dad's mood, absolute rules is kill the thing you love. So uh, uh, some, sometimes my most complicated emotive scenes end up on the cutting room floor because I oh. love them, but I'm not positive yeah. you'll love them. Uh, right. And then okay. on the other hand, I think from fan response that in the Red Knight books, a lot of the banter between Sauce and Bad Tom, which really is like a bad marriage, uh, yes. is, are some of the people's favorite bits. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. so sometimes that is rewarding. No, for sure. That's exactly what I thought about when you when you started talking about bad marriages and fantasy. So yeah, you, you, obviously you did that one right. <laughs> um, do you view writing as a kind of a spiritual practice? Uh, only on really good days. So um, it is definitely meditative. Uh, mm -hmm. It's made me think differently about prayer and how prayer works. So yes, mm -hmm. but then 
I really am careful about over-dramatizing or over-romanticizing the process of writing. Because what I tell mm -hmm. people, and lots of people ask me writing advice, which I try to be super humble about because I have no idea how other people should write, but yeah. it is a job. It's a job. Like, and I don't want to over-romanticize or dramatize it. It's a job. You sit down and you do it. And at some level, it's no different from stocking shelves at Walmart. I mean, you know, I, I imagine I worked in a grocery store. I remember every day, starting the day, feeling pretty good about my job. And there were elements of it, because I can be super detail-oriented. There were elements of it yeah. I kind of enjoyed. And I go like, okay, we're going to do this today. We're going to fix the time boxes. They're all going to be in order today. <laughs> and then by like two-thirds of the way through, I'd be bored spitless, just trying to get to the end of my shift. And I have to admit yeah. that at one level, there can be a spiritual gratification or a spiritual contact in writing, but at another, there's that same feeling six hours into the day that you'd really like to be done right. with your shift. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And, and both, both are aspects of, of the spiritual life on some level, right? I mean, Absolutely. when we're talking about spirituality, we're not just talking about being uplifted. All spirituality time, is right? not mm -hmm. all goodness and light. That's right. <laughs> it's not. In fact, it's very rarely that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so tell me about the uh, the reader's guide that you were working on this past week and uh, where so, can we find it? What is it about? So first of all, I'm a giant nerd and I enjoy role-playing games enormously. Okay. And uh, because Cold Iron is set in a completely imaginary fantasy world that is not as straightforward as, say, the Red Knight, but I will give you some historical context because this is, I mean, with almost all fantasy, we have to pin it to something. Uh, and I could actually give you fantasy things to pin it to. I could say that I have a major city that is like Lankmar, but that dates me because Lankmar is Fofford and the Grey Mauser. And like, does anybody read Fritz Lieber anymore? I don't even know. Or uh, I could they say, should. <laughs> I could say it was like Merovingia, because it is very much like Merovingia, and that's C.J. Sherry, and that's uh, I don't know, 1988 maybe. Uh, yeah. But it's easier to say it's like Istanbul and Venice rolled into a single city. And okay. I love both cities. Uh, I love canals. Uh, and there's something about Istanbul that is remarkable, and I haven't spent nearly enough time there. Uh, and anyway, I sort of wanted that great city, that great fantasy city center point. And then I wanted to have a university because I wanted my character to start as basically a university student. And I wanted it to be a medieval university uh, with all the strangeness and completely personal relationships of a medieval university. So I had some fun with that. Uh, but I also didn't want it to be Western Europe. So it's actually all a mixture of the Ottoman Empire, Safavid Persia, and uh, Byzantine Greece with sort of elements stolen from Russia and other sort of more orthodox. Uh, but you'd be hard put to, I, I'm, I'm giving you names, but that doesn't mean yes. that you could find any simple correspondence like you could in right. Midnight where you could go like, this is this and this is this. No, I, I made a yeah. stew. And my stew, okay. my stew is not centered on London. My stew is centered on Athens, Istanbul, uh, 
you know, and, and points a little further east and maybe a little further north, mm -hmm. the Crimea. I, I hope I've created a sort of different context. So the reader's guide was originally the player's guide for my role-playing game because okay. when I started all this three years ago or four years ago when I had this idea for a novel, I realized it was going to be so different from what I reenact that I couldn't reenact my way through it. I couldn't just like mm -hmm. a 17th century reenactment or an 18th century reenactment. And uh, I love role-playing games and I thought, okay, I'm going to write down all my thoughts about this world like it was a role-playing game. And then I'm going to run a role-playing mm -hmm. game. I'm going to invite my friends and we're going to sit down and we're going to play. And I want to say mm -hmm. readers, we didn't play the plot of the novel. In fact, none mm -hmm. of my players have ever met any character from the plot of the novel. That, what they did was to explore the world because real people mm -hmm. playing in a world bounce off things that you forgot about when you were writing a novel. So, you know, when you write a novel, yeah. you're controlling the protagonist and it does what you want and stays inside the bounds. But the moment you allow Aurora Simmons, for example, to play in your world, she immediately says like, so where do I buy a donkey? And you go like, buy a donkey. But, wow, hmm, hadn't even thought of that. Gotta be a place <laughs> to buy donkeys. Um, and, uh, and, you know, where does the iron ore come from? Not a question that any of my characters had asked. Mm -hmm. came up in the very first. <laughs> First adventure, where does the iron ore right. come from? Uh, and thousands of other things. So I couldn't reenact the world of Cold Iron, but I could run it as a role-playing game and let roughly 15, It's it, the, the party's never bigger than eight, but 15 people play. Um, roughly 15 people bounce off it. Mm -hmm. Some of them have written me notes and a couple of them have suggested things. So I have updated the guide right along and uh, then I wrote uh, mm -hmm. Iron is coming out on August 30th. Uh, Dark Forge or Forge of Darkness, whichever it is, I think it's going to be called Dark Forge, uh, is already done. Uh, in fact, I got the edit back today, and I'm happy to say my editor loved it, so I'm going to roll with that. Um, it's good. a good day here. Good. Uh, <laughs> but, um, it's already done, and I'm already writing book three, and it's only a three-book series. So yeah. I sat down to incorporate all the things that maybe had changed about the world from the other direction. So now that I've written <laughs> the novel, some things are set in stone, mm -hmm. right? Because now it's happened. Mm -hmm. the, the novel has happened. So the name of this particular god or the way the Temple of Light looks when you're standing in the street, that's done now. That is, it's in print. Mm -hmm. So that's not how, now yeah. how it is. And then I'm arrogant enough to believe that maybe out there somewhere in the world are nine people who actually want to play their role-playing game in my world. So I, yeah. uh, for all these reasons, I thought I would release our uh, handbook. And it really is, you know, remember the player's handbook in D&D? It's like a short player's handbook. Um, mm -hmm. Just to tell you, you know, how gods work, how religion works, how the cosmology works. Mm -hmm. And I will totally admit to people that they can read that guide online and not one word in a hundred of it will ever appear in the novel. This is the okay. background to allow you to play in a role-playing game. I don't guarantee it has anything to do with the novel, except that it helped <laughs> me enormously and it helped my players. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, this is going to sound silly to you, especially as you're religious, but 
One of the reasons in the Red Knight that I chose to use Christianity as the fundamental religion is not actually because I'm Christian. It's because it's yeah. a context that everyone understands. And pardon my right. blasphemy, when a character says, Jesus Christ, we all know exactly what that means and what that implies. And to a medieval mind, how everyone else clinches yeah. at the blasphemy. But yeah. if I say, Corin yeah. uh, ring splitter, uh, <laughs> even from context, no one is that impressed. And I really wanted yeah, to capture right. the flavor of medieval angry blasphemy in Red Knight. Mm -hmm. So in this book, you did, series, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I have tried to actually dive into the creation of a cosmology and a theology where people mm -hmm. use the names, invoke the gods, or ignore yeah. the gods, or whatever. And I've tried to do that in a way that I see around me in Toronto with Muslims and Sikhs. Today I met a Sikh magic user. That is no joke. In a parking lot at Canadian wow. Tire. No a, way. A Sikh, a, a Sikh astrologer came up to me and told me that I was at a oh critical moment in my life. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I, I am merely trying to reflect what I see around me. And in a multicultural yeah. world, I assume that there would be different belief systems, and I try and have those. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd put this guide together so that those people who care, and I think we all know who they are, there is a certain kind yeah. of, I won't even say fan, there's a certain kind of reader who really deep yeah. dives into your material and then goes like, yeah. how did this work? You made that up. Right. That doesn't work. Yep. And I thought I would provide those people, people like me, with like, here's a guide so you can know. So when somebody swears by Corin Ring Splitter, you're like, ah, I know who that is. <laughs> Instead of my having to do a huge exposition in the text, which doesn't work for anyone. Yeah. No, it doesn't. You're right. And, and it's great because if you have that as the background, then it just makes the writing much, much richer because you already have the world created. I mean, this is why, this is why so much fantasy is still doesn't quite reach um, uh, Tolkien's levels because Tolkien had all that stuff done before. You know, he, he, he wrote the languages, he had the mythology and all that. And all that stuff, is, it seeps through every single line, every single word, every single poem. And you, you, you know, whether you like Tolkien or not, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, argue the fact that the world building there is beyond anything. So when you have that, even to a small level, it really, really adds a great level to your writing. So that's good to hear. <laughs> I adore Tolkien, just for the record, even though I now suspect good. that some of Tolkien's ideas are deeply racist. I, I still can't help but admire. It's great writing. I love Tolkien. Yeah, me too. Not, I can't get enough of not the movies, though. <laughs> I always give no, away a couple, no, no, couple no. of fans by going like, yeah. No, no. Especially the Hobbit movies. That, that shouldn't even be talked about. <laughs> no, my 14-year-old my can't stand the <laughs> Hobbit movies. There you go. See? It's an intelligent person. You've raised her right. <laughs> uh, awesome. All right. Well, um, okay. Uh, one last question. We've been doing, doing this for over an hour. Um, what do you want your readers to do as soon as they're done with your book? With Cold Air? Any book. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Hold on while I think about that. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to answer this two different ways. One, I hope they'll put it down and stare off into space for five minutes because that's what I do when I read a book that just blows me away. I sit there trying to like 
get my head around all the things that have just gone into my my head. So I hope they do nothing for 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 several minutes, and then wow, I'm being mocked by my daughter, but that's normal. Um, and then you know I at, at some level this is my job, and so I kind of hope they immediately call their two best friends and say you should read this. Yeah. Yeah. B says two hundred is better. Two hundred. Yes. Yeah, because um, uh, I could really use more readers. So, uh, but at another level, I would really hope with Cold Iron and really more, even more with the next two, because Cold Iron is a setup. It's a whole plot and all the things you want, but it's also a setup. Mm -hmm that when people finish this series, I kind of hope they sit and think, oh, that's really true. Ah, that is how the world mm -hmm. works. Wow, I want to mm -hmm. make sure that mm -hmm. Donald Trump never happens again. Things like that. Yeah. That's kind of what I'd like people to think when they're done. Yeah, well, yeah, good. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope that they come away, come away from that with uh, at least half of that. <clears throat> Uh, we have a few more questions from the uh, from the audience here. Uh, let's hear about the Red Knight prequels, please. Okay, so pardon me, I, I need to move my hands around. Uh, yeah. When I contracted to write a three book series, which became a five book series, um, Jillian Redfern and I agreed that I should set it up so that I could write an either YA or maybe grown up fantasy about how Gabriel Murrians happened. Like, uh -huh. you know, I, I could string together all the backstory, but there's a lot of hints to his not very happy childhood um, yeah. and his fairly screwed up parents. So, yes. <laughs> um, uh, and we know that he tried to commit suicide and failed. So uh -huh. something happened. And then he's the captain of a great mercenary company. So right. I know that story. I have that story outlined. And after I've written uh, the Masters and Mages series, and I already have the prequel for it written for complicated reasons, which I'll tell you if you want to hear. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and remember, I write pretty fast. Uh, I, yeah. If there's reader interest, I will probably write the prequel, and it will probably be called Gabriel or Prince Gabriel or something like that. And I'll probably write it not as YA because mm -hmm. here's my teaser because a hero who spends a significant part of the novel living in a whorehouse is unlikely to ever reach the banal level of YA. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we know that Sauce was a prostitute and we know that Gabriel yeah. and Sauce lived together. And right. uh, so like, and we know that he lived in Liviopolis at some point. So you can put all yeah. those things together and figure out, that most of the novel is set in Liviopolis and, um, and how it all happens. I, I could tell you the story now, but then I'd sell fewer books later. So, no, no, don't, don't, don't. So that, no, no spoilers. That's the prequel. <laughs> okay, excellent. And then there's one more um, about what's your next project, but I think you've already answered that. Uh, so, um, well, no, uh, I, actually, I'd be happy to answer that because I haven't said a thing about historical okay. novels. So, oh, yeah, right. Um, Galantz has decided to publish the the Masters and Mages books bang 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 at like six month intervals. So they're just going to come out Great. really fast. 
And then I think we're going to publish The Sword, which is the prequel a thousand years before about how this whole world came into existence, <laughs> which is already mostly written. So it will happen right away. Uh, Fantastic. The next book I write after finishing the sequel to Col Col the final book of the trilogy, which I'm writing right now and is called Lightbringer, uh, is actually going to be the next chivalry novel. So it's a historical about William Gold and it will be called probably Hawkwood's Sword and it'll be done around Christmas time and probably out next June. So that's actually my next writing project and that is strictly mm -hmm. historical. And then I have to write another historical, uh, the second part of a two book series about Philip Pullman and um, that book will be, is, the first book is called The New Achilles and is out in January. Um, and the protagonist in that novel is not a great warrior. He's an ancient Greek doctor. So that will be a bit of a different, oh, wow. bit of a different spin. Cool. Um, and uh, that book's already written and already edited. So, it, and they're holding it till January for uh, publishing world reasons, but that book will be out in, in January. So <coughs> I have like projects and then projects and then some other projects and then some other projects. Amazing, amazing. You're, I mean, how many how many books have you written? What are, they, are you up to up to fifty yet? <laughs> uh, no, uh, I counted the other day and it was fewer than I thought. I have thirty six uh. published novels, so I think when New Achilles comes out next, I think it will be my fortieth novel, as the wow. as the publication world goes. Fantastic. That's I mean that's it's unheard of, <laughs> but that that's awesome. Good for you. <clears throat> I also I wanted to before we sign off I wanted to let um, your readers and, and my and my readers know that I'm actually going to be um, offering a free copy of Cold Iron to uh, one giveaway giveaway winner at the end of the month. Um, I'm not asking you to provide that. I'm going to get that myself. Um, but uh, so this this is part of a collection of novels that I'm. Oh look at that! It's beautiful. I love that cover. I have uh, fantastic. You know, I tell you what, you could give away yeah. one and I could give away one. I wouldn't be mailing right. it for a week, but I have the English edition right here. So you could take Fantastic. two winners and we, okay. we could mail books to both of them. All right, let's do that then. All right, so one of them is going to be, is going to, is a part of a, um, a giveaway that I'm going to be putting into the comment section right now under the video. And the other one is just going to be anybody who commented uh, during this past video. So if you haven't, Commented yet? Now's your chance just to say something, <laughs> uh, and that'll be that'll be your copy, Christian. And the other one is a, is is going to be a collection of novels. The theme is called Uncommon Worlds. So the idea is that this is um, all kinds of fantasy novels that are not set in traditional Western Europe. So uh, just exactly perfect for for Cold Iron. So I've just put that into the to the comment section. Anybody want to um, enter? Uh, you have plenty of chances to uh, to increase your chances of winning, and well, hello there. <laughs> That's my daughter Beatrice. Excellent. <laughs> Hi, Beatrice. Hi. <laughs> Be nice to your dad. <laughs> I no. No. <laughs> That's not what age fourteen yeah. is about. Yeah, mine's mine's only four, so I have all that to look forward you to. You have so much to look forward to, Nicholas. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, it's all fantastic. But 14, yeah. very special.
<laughs> I'll, I'll uh, keep that in mind <laughs> when the going gets tough. Christian, this has been a real pleasure. Um, if you want to, uh, any parting thoughts for, for your readers um, before we sign off? Well, I'd like to recommend that my readers buy your books. Uh, <laughs> so Nicholas writes Russian fantasy. I think that's a fair thing to say. And I wouldn't call it historical. I would call it more based on a rich fairy tale background, a rich mythological background, a very yeah. Christian informed mythological background. Um, and the thing that I liked best about it, and there are a lot of things I liked about it, I think what can rob fantasy of validity is a lack of consistency. And Nicholas, yeah. your book was utterly consistent, I think because of your faithfulness <laughs> to your milieu, but it yeah. gave it great power to me. Like, not just lyrical power, but I believed when things were, I'm good at suspension of disbelief, but yeah. I hate getting kicked out of a fantasy novel when I go like, ah, that's not what you said. You never mentioned yeah. volcanoes. Yeah. This sudden appearance right. of a volcano. <laughs> and you never did that to me. Your characters were great. Uh, do you have a copy of yours to hold up? Um, Come on. Yes, I do actually. Be vain. Want to do that. Sell a few copies. So this is this is the hardcover version. This is not the one that you'd find on Amazon, but this is what it looks like. So, <laughs> so I hundred percent recommend this, and not just because Nicholas is teaching me how online technology works. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think you should all just dive on Amazon and buy yourself a copy now, all seventeen of you. Uh, and the other thing I want to say is that I hope very much you enjoy Cold Iron, and I really appreciate reader feedback. So, friends. If you read my book and like it or don't like it, either way, I'd love to hear from you. I'm very interested in what people say. That's it. Thank you, Christian. And yes, I, I echo that. This is something that authors don't say enough and something that re readers don't consider enough. We authors really like to hear from our readers. We um, do. It's, even, if it's, even if it's to say nasty things, we still appreciate it. So The fabulous difference between fantasy and historical fiction is that mostly veterans will write to me about historical fiction books, and that's great. And it has given me a special relationship. But in fantasy, everyone writes to you. Sometimes people you didn't want to hear from. No, I don't mean that. Yes. <laughs> you, you get tons of feedback, and that is fabulous. Thank you, Nicholas. Yeah, awesome. You're a star. I really Thank appreciate you. it. No, it's, it's been great. Thanks so much. Have a good evening. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.